When my children were young, they all went through what I call the why stage of life. Everything we asked them to do was followed by the question, why? Go to bed, son. Why? Eat your food. Why? It's good for you. Why? At first we thought, this is so cute. They're so smart, so inquisitive, that we realized they were simply stalling. It was a stalling technique, so they didn't have to do what they were told. So as we got smarter as parents, we really no longer entertained their why questions. When we asked them to do something and they asked why, our response would be, because mommy and daddy said so, so just do it. As we strive to be men and women of faith in this new year, leveling up in our spiritual maturity, we have to come to realize that part of our spiritual growth is to lessen our why questions of God and simply do as He says. It doesn't mean we can't ask Him why, but we must be willing to accept His silence when He doesn't answer us, and we must be willing to simply follow His commands as revealed in the Scriptures, even if we never get the answer to why we have to do those commands. This is called faith, and one of the ways we grow in our faith is by simply following directions and commands without asking why all the time. It should be enough that we believe in a God that loves us unconditionally and cares for us. And when He tells us to do something, it is for our benefit, for our good, and in fact solves many of life's problems. My friends, you and I have many problems and issues today because we don't follow God's commands. We can't seem to solve many of our own issues today because we have not heeded God's instructions. As we look ahead in the new year with the many challenges and problems we're currently facing or will face in the year ahead, we need to follow God's instructions in order to find solutions to life's problems. Just like when we don't follow instructions in a manual, we get into trouble, or we don't ask for directions, we get lost. We need to follow God's instructions to tackle life's challenges. Let's look at some principles for how we tackle life's challenges in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Look with me as I read verses 1 to 6. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given great victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. In verses 1 to 6, we are presented with a problem. Naaman, a highly respected and honorable army commander of King Ben-Hadid II of Aram, or Syria, had leprosy. Now, this dreaded disease in the ancient Near East degenerated its victim, was deforming, and eventually proved fatal. And there was no known cure for it. In Israel, lepers were normally isolated from non-lepers, but this was not always the case in other nations like Syria or Aram. 
Naaman was able to serve the king as long as the disease permitted him. And he was highly regarded as a successful and courageous warrior, winning many victories as given by the Lord, as verse 1 tells us. In one of their battles with Israel, Naaman's forces captured some Israelites whom they made slaves. And one of these young girls Naaman had given to his wife as a servant. Evidently, Naaman and his wife were kind to this girl because she cared for Naaman's condition. She told Naaman's wife, who told her husband, that a prophet living in Israel could cure leprosy. This was the great prophet of God, Elisha. The Syrian king was anxious for his valuable commander to be cleansed, not only because he was a trusted friend, but because this dreaded disease would eventually rob the king of his top military commander. And so he sent Naaman to visit King Joram of Israel, whom he assumed would and could order this prophet in Israel to cure him. With him, the Bible tells us, Naaman took gifts, money, valuables, and a letter from the king of Syria to King Joram of Israel requesting that Naaman be cured. Look at verse 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. King Joram was dismayed when he read the letter from Ben-Hadad II. You see, Israel and Syria had been at relative peace, but it appeared to Joram that Ben-Hadad was trying to pick a fight again as he had done with Joram's father, King Ahab, as First Kings chapter 20 tells us. The ironic thing is that King Joram did not realize that Naaman did not expect him to cure the leprosy, but the prophet who lived in his lands. It is a sad indication of the low spiritual condition of Israel at that time, as the prophet of God, Elisha, did not even enter into Joram's mind as one who could cure this leprosy. You see, the king of Israel had no use for a prophet who constantly opposed him because of his pagan ways. And so Joram wanted as little possible contact with this prophet of the one true God. Now, before we're too hard on Joram, in many ways we are like him as well. You see, when the problems of life presents itself, our first reaction is one of sadness, despair, grief, worry, and despondency. And then we think of ways we can solve it ourselves because we think it's something I alone have to deal with. I don't have any other help. And if the problem seems insurmountable, then we grieve and worry even more because we can't seemingly tackle or solve the problem that is before us. We have forgotten about the one true God who resides in our hearts when we place our trust in Jesus Christ that can come to our aid at any time, and He can do the impossible. You see, here's the first principle, number one. Problems are only problems when God is not considered in the equation. Problems are only problems when God is not considered in the equation. Now, I'm not trying to belittle or make light the difficulties in your life, but I'm simply trying to point out that often the problems of our lives are only problems because we do not take into account the God who is with us, the God who can do the impossible in accordance with His will, the God who has given us a purpose for us to live this life the God who can change hearts and can change minds, the God who can transform people, the God who has our best in mind, and the God who has secured for us eternity. When God is taken into the equation of things, 
Often, the issues of our lives aren't as bad as they seem when we have a spiritual mindset of what life is all about and the God we live for who advocates for us and can help us. My friends, many challenges and difficulties will arise this year, or perhaps you're currently in a very tough situation. So my question to you is this, have you considered how God can help you? Have you prayed and asked Him to help you? Do you look to Him for help? Do you seek His help constantly? Here we have a very big incident. Naaman had the incurable disease of leprosy, and he needed to be cured or else there would be an international incident that may develop, and two nations may go to war. That's certainly a big problem. And King Joram was worried because he thought he had to solve this unsolvable problem. He had forgotten that there is a prophet of the one true God who resided in his lands. Now look at me at verses 8 to 10. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean." When Elisha learned of King Joram's anxiety over Ben-Hadid's letter, he sent the king of Israel a message not to worry. If Joram would send Naaman to him, the prophet of God would cure him. You see, Naaman would learn and eventually acknowledge, even if King Joram had not, that there was a prophet of the one and only true God in Israel. Before long, Naaman and his entire entourage arrived at Elisha's door. But notice that Elisha was not at all awed by this great general of Syria. In fact, he didn't even go out to meet him. Instead, Elisha sent a messenger to convey the God-given simple prescription or instruction for the solution to Naaman's problem of leprosy. It's important to remember in today's generation, it's not about the communicator. It's about the message. It is the message and the truth that it contains that is important and life-saving, not necessarily the messenger, however educated, eloquent, and flashy. Naaman was to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and he would be cured of his disease. But please listen carefully. The cure lay not in the water of the Jordan, but in Naaman's obedient faith in God's promise through the message of his prophet It wasn't the water that cured him. It wasn't him dipping seven times. It was his faith and obedience to the instructions given. The problem was leprosy. The instruction from God for the solution was to dip himself seven times in the water of the Jordan. Now, let me stop here and ask you something. If you were Naaman, would you do this? Would you think this odd? I mean, that's such an odd way to cure leprosy. If it was a known way to cure leprosy, everyone would jump in the Jordan and dip themselves seven times. At least perhaps he was instructed to go eat a root of a plant, or perhaps put on an ointment, or perhaps being prayed over or touched by the prophet of God, and that would be the solution. But to go dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, it doesn't make sense. And I want to draw out another principle here, principle number two. God's solutions to our problems may not always make sense to us. 
God's solutions to our problems may not always make sense to us, but it is something we are to accept. You see, my friends, the Bible is full of commands and instructions for how we are to live, but many times we feel that those commands and instructions are old and archaic or too old-fashioned for the world in which we live. But we have to understand that His solutions for how we are to live does not have to make sense for us. There is no timestamp on those instructions. It's never been about us understanding how it all works. It's about us obeying by faith the instructions from the omniscient, sovereign God, and we are to follow it. You may push back or argue with me and say, I will not participate or do anything that I do not fully understand. If that's your logical argument, then you shouldn't be driving a car or flying in an airplane because I bet most of you can't explain to me the inner workings of a combustible engine or how the drive shaft works. Most of you can't tell me how lift is produced through the airflow over the unique shape of the airplane wing or how the hydraulic systems work to control the plane or how the pitot tubes gauge airflow and speed. But without proper understanding, we still drive a car and fly in an airplane because we trust the engineers who built the car and the plane. Similarly, we should also have the same faith in God's solutions to man's problems as revealed in the Scriptures. We may not fully understand how it all works, but we need to have the faith that the God who wants the best for us has given us principles by which we are to live to help us get through and tackle the challenges of our lives. Look with me now at verses 11 and 12. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Look at the reaction of Naaman when he heard the instructions from Elisha's messenger how his leprosy was to be cured. He went into a rage. And like my children, when they were young, went into the why mode. Why do I have to do this? Why this particular river in Israel, the River Jordan? He was furious and angry. Now, did he have a right to be angry? Of course not, because he was the one in need. He was the one in trouble. He needed God's mercy and grace to cure him of this incurable disease. And yet, before we get too critical of Naaman, remember we are often the same way. We have many demands of God. We expect Him to tell us why. Why, Lord, is this instruction to be followed? We expect Him to answer our prayers now. We demand, demand, demand of Him. When will we realize it is us who need help from Him? Remember, my friends, God doesn't need us. We need God. Let's look deeper at some of the reasons why Naaman left Elisha's house angry and in a rage. It was primarily for three reasons. First, Naaman's pride had been hurt by the prophet Elisha's less than VIP treatment of him. This great general of the Syrian army who had come with a large entourage bringing much gift had his pride wounded. He expected Elisha to come out to meet him, but instead he was only met by Elisha's messenger. Second, Naaman's expectations were not met for how he expected to be healed. He says in verse 11 that he wanted Elisha to come out and then pray and wave his hands and then he would be clean. As simple as that. 
in that expectation, Naaman somehow thought he would be able to keep his dignity. He wouldn't have to go deep in a dirty river, and everyone's time would be saved. Imagine, he had an expectation for how he would be miraculously cured. Third, Naaman's arrogance caused him to resent having to be told to wash in the muddy river of the Jordan that he considered inferior to the rivers of his hometown, the Abana and the Far Far Rivers. So how can this inferior river hold the key to my healing, Naaman arrogantly thought. You know, it's almost humorous that although Naaman was the one with the problem, he was prideful, arrogant, and had expectations beyond his status and standing. Even though he was commander of the Syrian army, how dare he question God? He dared to question the instructions of God who alone can do the impossible, who alone can cure him of his incurable disease. Again, before we're too hard on Naaman, we are often the same way. We question the commands of God in the Bible, thinking that God should work in a certain way to solve our problems in the way we want. We want our problems to be solved using my own ways and my own methods, and I expect God to do this and that. When we have that attitude and thinking, we are no better than Naaman in our pride and arrogance. If we have the problem and we're asking God for help, then it should be with humility that we accept what He has revealed to us to be the solution. In World War II, when the Allies were losing in North Africa to the Nazis, the famed British general, General Montgomery, was placed in command. When he came into command of the troops in North Africa to rescue the Allied forces from losses, General Montgomery expected his commands to be carried out. He said, orders no longer form the basis for discussion, but for action. I like that. Orders no longer formed the basis for discussion, but for action. And that is exactly what we are to learn about God's instructions. And here we have our third principle, number three. God's instructions to solve our problems are not up for discussion, but for action. God's instructions to solve our problems are not up for discussion, but for action. But it is pride in how we see ourselves, arrogance in seeing ourselves better than who we are, and expecting more than what we really do that serves as a hindrance to us obeying God's specific commands for how we are to live to help solve life's problems. And then we wonder why there are so many challenges we face in life, or we wonder why life's problems continue to persist in our lives, because instead of action, we think that God's instructions and commands are for us to discuss with Him. But I don't believe God has a time for us to discuss with Him the merits of forgiving one another. He tells us to do it. God doesn't want us to spend a lot of time discussing with Him why we are to love our enemies. He tells us to do it. God simply tells us to establish an intimate relationship with Him. God tells us to live out our lives with integrity. These things are not up for discussion, but for action. Look with me at verse 13. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? It's wonderful that Naaman had servants who really cared for him and were able to speak their mind and the truth to him. This speaks to the character of Naaman 
and how he must have treated his servants well, for they were willing to open up to him. Because how many servants or employees would stick out their necks in the height of their boss's rage and anger to go against their boss's thinking with the boss's best interest in mind? They must have really liked and admired him. Naaman's servants reminded him of the right perspective. What do you have to lose? Elisha didn't require something so difficult for him to be healed. Just a bath in the river Jordan. What did Naaman have to lose? And that's a question I want to ask all of us. What do we have to lose when we follow God's commands? What do we have to lose by living out life as God intended for us to live? Especially when, if we do so, our problems perhaps will be resolved and the challenges we face will be minimized. It's to our benefit that we live out God's commands. So what do we have to lose? You know, I've read through the Bible a few times and have studied God's commands and what He expects of His people to do. And you know what? He doesn't ask us to do anything beyond our capacity. He doesn't ask us to do great things that only some of us can accomplish. He only directs us to do things we can accomplish and do with the help of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in the Bible about you having to go on a great and costly pilgrimage to a shrine. There's nothing about Christians having to set aside an exorbitant amount of money that is above what we even have in the bank. There's nothing in the Bible that says we are to try to live out a lifestyle that is extravagant or perform great acts of heroism or break world records. The Bible simply instructs us to place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, to live lives of integrity, to live lives of faithfulness, to live with eternity in mind, to love and to serve others, to live as wise stewards of what He's given us, and to simply do our best for His glory. These are all things that every one of us can do. So what do we have to lose in trying to live a life for Christ in accordance with how He desires us to live and in the process have many of our problems solved and our challenge minimized? Remember in this story, Naaman is the one with the problem, but the pride of his heart was preventing him from possibly getting healed from an incurable disease. What did he have to lose? In the same way, we are the ones with the problems and the challenges in life. What is there to lose in following the instructions of God to find solutions to life's problems? I think Naaman realized this truth finally, and look what he does in verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman humbled himself and obeyed the word of the Lord. He went and dipped himself seven times in the river Jordan. And because he obeyed by faith, the Bible tells us he was healed from the then incurable leprosy. In fact, as an added bonus of not just curing him from leprosy, God restored his flesh to the soft boyhood texture that he once had. You see, when we follow God's solutions to our problems, there is nothing to lose, but in fact, there's everything to gain. And that's our fourth principle, number four. There's nothing to lose by following God's commands, but everything to gain. There's nothing to lose by following God's commands, but everything to gain. With this truth, 
Would you and I consider living out God's commands and instructions this year by faith, realizing we have everything to gain? Think for yourself, is there anything that will be detrimental in your life and in my life if I live out my life righteously and with integrity? Nothing that I can think of, but I gain so much. I gain purpose and significance. I gain a clear conscience. I gain an honorable reputation. I gain the approval of my Lord. I gain eternal rewards. And that is all gained by living out God's instructions and commands. And also, I gain the fact that many of my problems will be solved. The challenges of my life will be minimized. So, my friends, the choice is yours. How then will you and I live? Now, look with me at verses 15 and 16. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman returned from the Jordan River to Elisha's house in Samaria with a heart full of gratitude and hands full of gifts. This time, rather than expecting Elisha to come out to meet him, Naaman humbled himself and came and willingly stood before the prophet and testified to his belief that Israel's God is the only true God. Unfortunately, many in Israel, including King Joram, had not come to this same realization. And this acknowledgement by Naaman of the one true God would be the climax of this story, not necessarily in his healing. His healing through faith, exemplified by obedience, was the catalyst for him to make this wonderful declaration. Note how Elisha refused to accept any reward for his ministry, and even at Naaman's urging, did not budge in his decision. You see, the prophet of God had not performed his miracle for reward or monetary gain, but he did so because he was following the instruction of our Lord. And that's a good reminder for many of us who are discerning the many false prophets out there who claim to do miracles, but only if you give them an offering before or after the miracle. Be careful of those false prophets. But look what happens when one simply follows God's instructions by faith. One finds a solution to their problems, and even solution to the problems you didn't know you had. Remember, Naaman had leprosy. He was cured of it. But more than that, Naaman was lost in a pagan religion and destined for hell. And his obedience by faith led him to come to know and acknowledge the one true God. So that based on the words of his proclamation taken at face value, he rejected his pagan gods and acknowledged Yahweh, the one true God. He was saved from eternal death. And here we have our fifth principle, number five. God's instructions lead to solutions to life's many known and unknown problems. God's instructions lead to solutions to life's many known and unknown problems. And my friends, the Bible is full of practical instructions and commands to life's most pressing problems. As it relates to spouses, the Bible says the two shall become one. That means two family cultures and two family backgrounds blend together. And so spouses must remember that they must give and take in their marriage relationship. The Bible tells us that a husband is to leave his family and cleave to his wife. That should solve many of the in-law problems. The Bible tells us husbands are to love their wives as Christ died for the church 
and wives are to submit to their husbands for order in the house. If a husband really loves his wife unconditionally and is willing to give his life for her to the extent of fully considering her desires, then I believe she will have no problems submitting to his decision, which takes into account her desires. The Bible talks about choosing friends wisely. And so friendships that lead and encourage you onto the right path and in Christ's likeness should be nurtured. The Bible tells us that those who are employers should treat their employees rightly and fairly. And on the other hand, employees are to work faithfully as unto the Lord, not for men. Parents are not to exasperate or annoy their children, while children are to obey their parents. And there are many, as it relates to emotions, like keeping your anger in check, watching your words, being reminded of what you fill your mind with, being in self-control. And there are so many other instructions and commands in the Scriptures that will address life's most pressing problems and, in fact, solve many of the current problems and challenges that you have. So many commands and instructions in the Bible, if only we are to live them out without question, then I bet that many of your problems will quickly disappear or never even come up, and you and I will be able to weather the challenges that come into our life. I hope and pray you and I will come to this great realization that God's instructions found in the Scriptures is for our good, and it brings us blessings. Why? Because it solves many of life's known and unknown problems. And we need to know what those instructions are by reading the Bible and reading it well. Now, let me end with this story. It's a story of a man who walked the streets of Philadelphia searching for employment. One day he happened to go into the office of a well-known businessman named Gerard. When he asked for a job, Mr. Gerard answered, yes, I can offer you work. See that pile of brick over there? Carry them over to the other side of the yard and stack them up. By nightfall, the man reported that the project was completed and received his pay. When asked if there would be more work the next day, Mr. Gerard said, yes, come in tomorrow and carry those same bricks back to where you found them. The following morning, he came in early and got busy without a word. For more than a week, he was instructed to carry the bricks back and forth until it was evident that he could be trusted to do exactly what he was told. Then he was given a new and bigger responsibility to go downtown and be the company's agent as it bid on large quantity of sugar, and he was given money to do so. He had earned this position by being faithful in the menial tasks. So, my friends, as we tackle this new year, we bring into the new year old problems and expect to encounter new challenges, but we don't have to worry about these things. All we have to do is faithfully live in obedience to God's commands. And we need to remember and trust that a God who cares and loves us gives us His instructions so that His children can find solution to life's problems and challenges. So remember these principles as we tackle life's challenges in this new year. First, problems are only problems when God is not considered in the equation. Second, God's solutions to our problems may not always make sense to us. Third, God's instructions to solve our problems are not up for discussion, but for action. Fourth, there's nothing to lose by following God's commands, but everything to gain. Fifth, 
God's instructions lead to solutions to life's many known and unknown problems. My friends, as we face life's challenges this year, may we apply these principles so that we can find solutions to our problems. May God bless you in this new year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you call us simply to live faithfully to what you've told us to do. Sometimes we may be overwhelmed because we carry into the new year existing problems. We look ahead scared because we can only anticipate the challenges to come. But Lord, thank you for giving us the scriptures which help us navigate through these uncertain, challenging times. We're simply to live in obedience and to trust by faith that you will take care of us. And we do so because you are a good and loving God. I pray blessings upon those who are hearing this message. May you give them a wonderful year ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.